This is the New England Journal of Medicine COVID-19 update for September 30th, 2020. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the Journal, and I'm talking with Eric Rubin, Editor-in-Chief, and Lindsay Baden, Deputy Editor. Eric and Lindsay, the number of infections is again rising in the United States and many other parts of the world. A few months ago, we looked at what was known about how to actually take care of patients. Our knowledge has evolved quite a bit since then, and it seems a good time to look again at how a physician should manage patients. Let's start with testing. Given what we know today, what do best practices look like? So, Steve, it's a good question. And I think today, let's confine ourselves largely to what an individual physician should do rather than the big public health questions that are associated, because the rules on testing for public health reasons are different than for testing individual patients. So there's been a lot of discussion, and there are certainly areas of disagreement. And so I think Lindsay and I are going to lay out our thinking on this. and. Lindsay's already pointed out that it might differ in some places. So the easiest decision is for individuals who are symptomatic with something that could be consistent with COVID-19. All of those people should be tested, obviously, and all of them should be tested with the most sensitive test available, particularly if you can get the results back in a timely manner. In general, that means some sort of nucleic acid amplification test rather than an antigen test, only because these tests are more sensitive to disease. If there's a low suspicion of disease, a single test might be fine. For those with a higher suspicion, it might be worth repeating the test because no test is perfectly sensitive. And since the syndromes are often indistinguishable, it's important to test for other respiratory viruses, particularly as we're entering influenza season right now. So testing is important because it has some implications for the patient. It also has infection control issues if that patient is going to end up being hospitalized or having some other procedure, particularly if that procedure produces aerosols, there are risks to other patients and to the staff. It's more complicated when we come to asymptomatic patients because the recommendations are a bit of a moving target. People who have a known exposure should be tested as obtaining a positive test has implications both for that individual and for anyone that they contact. Again, in this case where we have a reasonable index of suspicion, the most sensitive tests are probably best. Though again, they're only useful if the results can be obtained in a relatively timely manner. It's not clear at this point what the best sample type is. It certainly looks like there are many types of samples that can be obtained, and some of them are much more convenient than others. So really it's a question of what's available right now where you are and what the turnaround times look like for any particular test. In general, as a physician, it's probably not a great idea to be testing low-risk asymptomatic individuals outside of screening situations, at least in the US. For one thing, there's a limited availability of tests, and they should probably be reserved for others. And for another, the performance characteristics of the tests that we're generally using vary considerably, and As you start testing a population with a low prevalence of infection, the performance characteristics suggest that you're going to get a lot of false positives and false negatives at that point, depending on the test. So it becomes a much less valuable result. Eric, I mean, I think that what you're raising gets back to some basic principles of the practice of medicine, which is how do we utilize testing? You know, that depends on the sensitivity and specificity of the test, as you alluded to, which then leads to the issue of the positive predictive value and the negative predictive value, 
or the likelihood that the result is true, which is a function of the prevalence. And those are basic principles that we learned in medical school and then subsequently in practice as we interpret testing. You know, an elevated CPK or troponin in someone with chest pain who's a 70-year-old man is likely a heart attack, while an elevated CPK or troponin in a 10-year-old with Duchenne's musculodystrophy may be related to the underlying condition. And we think about this whenever we apply a test. A test is not the answer. It informs the clinical circumstance. The challenge that I see, and you know, I'm speaking really today as a practitioner and a community member, where you know, in the last two, three weeks, I've had two colleagues who were found to be COVID-infected practicing physicians in Boston, both of whom were identified as part of a screening program to drive their kids to college in a different state. They were asymptomatic. They were shocked when they found out that the tests were positive. The reason they were tested was part of how do we reopen schools? How do we reopen colleges? I think that it was a good idea that they were tested. I think it was a good idea they were identified. It was a good idea that they were put into conditions to decrease forward transmission, however surprising it was. But they would be asymptomatic. And so I think how we think about testing in the asymptomatic has to do with the community prevalence, which is a dynamic concept. The community prevalence a year ago was different than back in February and March, depending where you were in the country, compared to the summer and compared to now in different jurisdictions. So I guess I look at this a little bit differently. I think our testing practice in part is related to what we can do, not what we think we should do. And we need to address the issue of what we should be doing. What do we think is the right way to do testing for our patients, for the people around them, for our communities, for opening up different elements of our communities like schools? And there, we should really push to have the capacity to test in a way that we think is appropriate, not let's see how many tests we have and how do we apply them best. Because then we are testing with a limited reagent versus what we think is the proper public health response. So I don't accept the argument that we should focus testing at those highest risk. We should focus on the ability to do more testing. And the other piece that you commented on, Eric, was TAT or turnaround time. Testing that comes back in a week is good for public health and epidemiology. It's not good for practice or control of transmission. The testing has to be easily accessible broadly and has to have a turnaround time really within a day or two at the most to be meaningful to interfere with forward transmission. So I would argue substantively that we should increase our testing capacity rather than accept a limited capacity and apply it most wisely, which is appropriate, but we need to increase the capacity because I think identifying physician colleagues who are asymptomatically infected was a good for them and their families, even though it was a surprise to all and the testing was for an unexpected reason. Lindsay, I don't disagree, but actually I disagree. Um, it's only because of the framing. You're absolutely right that screening programs are not only useful, but extremely important. And they have gotten relatively short shrift in the sort of more societal discussion of the use of testing. And the reason we don't have enough tests is that we don't have enough tests to do those screening programs adequately. We don't have the right tests. 
I guess I'm focusing here, however, on an individual practitioner. Should an individual practitioner be testing their patients who are asymptomatic, who don't have a known exposure? And the answer there, I think, is probably no. If it's not within a screening program, then it's hard to know what to do with that information. Within a screening program, it's very, very different. And I absolutely agree that we need more tests. The other point that you make, with which I completely agree, is that everything here is a moving target. The types of tests are changing, the availability of tests is changing, and what you should be doing today in Alabama might be very different from what you should be doing today in San Francisco. Because the ecosystem is different, the prevalence is different, and I think that really does change what you do. But again, as an individual practitioner who is not running a screening program, I think that you'll create more trouble than it's worth by testing very low-risk individuals. I accept the point that testing shouldn't be random. There should be some organized approach with that. Until we can get to a point where we can have easy access to mail-away testing or testing kiosks diffusely available, testing ultimately will likely fall on the practitioner. Because what is the distribution system to be able to do that and to do that in an efficient way? Hopefully, we'll get to a place, and it may not be that far off, where we can do home testing, whether it's immediate result or a mail-in result. But I am sensitive to how do people actually get tested and what is our ability to scale that up. But I agree, random asymptomatic testing is probably not the best use of testing. But I think that only illness testing is not serving the collective interest. And that brings in the broader public health community. Well, now I agree with you. About time. So looking at that individual practitioner with what we've got today, a common scenario for primary care physicians is to get a call from a patient who's received positive test results from screening at work or at school. What's a reasonable recommendation for that physician in this case today? So. The first thing to establish is what kind of testing was done. There are two kinds of tests in general, those that test for the virus and those that test for antibodies to the virus. And so the first thing to know is, was this an antibody test or a viral test? Because there are important consequences for a patient who tests positive with a viral test. First, they need to be assessed for symptoms. That does not necessarily require that they come in, that it be an in-person evaluation because a lot of people are going to be asymptomatic and remain asymptomatic throughout. But patients who are asymptomatic or minimally symptomatic should be advised to look out for the development of worsening symptoms that could require a visit to the emergency room or a trip to their PCP's office. Remember, though, again, that most patients who are found in screening are asymptomatic and will remain asymptomatic throughout. Next come two important public health principles. I said I was going to stay away from public health, but this really applies to an individual. So anyone who tests positive should be isolated for 10 days. Under CDC recommendations right now, there's no need to repeat testing. At the end of 10 days, for the most part, except in unusual cases in hospitalized patients, they no longer need to be isolated, no matter what the test shows. And contacts of these patients need to be quarantined for 14 days. Those contacts could be tested again to see if they're positive, which would have public health implications down the line and, again, implications for them as individuals. But negative tests here don't decrease the necessity for quarantine. So they still have to remain in quarantine for a couple of weeks 
And that's because tests can turn positive later. I think these are some of the most common questions that individual practitioners are getting right now. Eric, I agree with how you're framing it. I think that, at least for me, I'm still waiting for continued data that will shed insight into how best to determine who's infectious. The current approach with isolation and quarantine makes good sense given the state of the current data. But I'm not fully convinced yet that the most definitive studies have been done. But it's very practical and consistent with our current understanding of transmission dynamics. Yeah, I think you're right, Lindsay. This is absolutely another moving target. But for now, this is based on what we know. And I know that some of the CDC's guidelines have been called into some question. But I think that this is based on reasonable data at this point. I concur. We as a community have to continue to remember to follow the science. And we have to use the best science available today. But as new data emerge, we should be receptive to that and accept that everything COVID is dynamic and should be informed with evidence. So you've been talking about nucleic acid amplification testing. But there's also been a lot of interest in antigen testing. How would you interpret the results of antigen tests? Antigen testing has become much more popular recently, and there are some big advantages to it. It's faster, and depending on the format, can give you very rapid answers, sometimes right at the point of care. And these tests use different reagents from the standard, usually RT-PCR, the most common nucleic acid amplification test. And that means that it might be easier to obtain these reagents. So in general, these tests might be more available. And again, they're often far cheaper than the nucleic acid amplification tests. So there are good reasons that they're becoming popular. Now, it's important to remember how their performance is though. They just don't work quite as well as nucleic acid-based tests. For one thing, they're less sensitive. So in general, these tests require relatively high viral load to turn positive and are not so good at detecting people who are positive but have lower viral loads. That has positives and negatives. It's potentially true that people with higher viral loads are more likely to transmit. So perhaps there's a correlation between antigen positivity and the risk of transmission. But it also means that real positives get missed. In addition, we know that there are false positives and there have been some well-publicized cases of this. So given that, how do you interpret these tests? A negative test isn't completely reassuring because of the possibility of a false negative, but a positive test isn't perfect either because we know that sometimes there are false positives. So what do you do with that information? You can repeat the testing, particularly in asymptomatic individuals, given that the tests aren't perfect, but there are two problems with that. All tests aren't perfect, so the repeat tests may have issues as well, even if they are the more sensitive nucleic acid-based test. And so Repeating a positive test, hoping that it's negative, probably isn't that great. The other problem is that at any given time, a patient may or may not be shedding virus. So you may simply miss the sampling point where you saw a virus. So altogether, a negative test after a positive test isn't particularly reassuring. And once you're positive, I think it's probably important that patients be considered positive no matter what follow-up testing shows, even though these tests are imperfect. I don't mean to suggest that antigen testing isn't worthwhile. And I think there are important public health reasons where these tests might become important and 
we published a piece, I think, today, which suggests that there's a role for these rapid tests, even though they're less sensitive in public health settings. But for individuals, they are a bit more problematic. Again, Eric, I'm going to come back to what does testing tell us? And how is it being applied, which gets to the sensitivity and specificity. And we know that where you set the cutoff will tell you when a test is positive or negative. And so as tests are developed and refined, one needs to apply them in a way that makes sense to the circumstance. And so that the sensitivity and specificity is very dependent on the cutoff for positivity. And how well has that been established for the different modalities that are being developed? And I think we need more modalities.